Heroic monster slayers are all well and good, unless you're a monster. And when those so-called monsters are people too, there's no such thing as black and white, and evil is a matter of perspective. Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, where we share our love for all things fantasy and discuss the broader speculative fiction industry. I'm your host, Travis Tippins. This week's interview is with author Vanessa Len. Her debut novel, Only a Monster, is out now from Harper Teen. Vanessa and I discuss who society views as monsters, the trickiness of time travel, and how to write a book you just can't put down. And now, let's see what Vanessa had to say. You're in for a great time. Hello, and welcome to the Fantasy Inn, Vanessa. I'm so thrilled to finally have you on the podcast. I'm so thrilled to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. Uh, Well, so I kind of like to kick things off. I always like hearing from people. Uh, Can you remember what first made you fall in love with science fiction and fantasy? Um, I I love this question because it's something I hadn't really thought about before at all. For me, I, 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 I don't remember actually falling in love with it, but when I was growing up, my dad had this huge classic science fiction library and my mum was an English teacher so she had all the classics. So I read the whole library um, but I definitely preferred dad's science fiction over the English classics. (laughs) (laughs) And then when I went to the library um, I also got fantasy which I also loved. So I think something's just a little bit innate, right? It's like um, you're drawn to the things that kind of I guess that you innately like and that was definitely the case for me with science fiction and fantasy. Yeah, I know, like, because uh, I've had to think about my own answer for this because it's been turned around on me a few times. And one thing I realize is a lot of times the answer for me changes because I guess there's a lot of different things around the same time. Like, at least in the United States, I feel like a lot of early kids' literature is science fiction and fantasy. You've got all oh, kinds of magical, true. fantastical things. So I was like, okay, do I count that as my introduction? Because I did really like those. Or do I count, like, my dad had a dusty box of like classic science fiction and fantasy paperbacks in the attic and when i was around 10 or so he was like hey i have these if you want and i was like oh this is awesome (laughs) (laughs) that's really that's really interesting i think um the other thing i don't know if this is true for you um but i just really like um i guess new worlds new ideas uh, when mm-hmm. I, I used to love really watching just the pilots of TV shows. So I just watched <sighs> all the pilots of that season. <laughs> just because oh, I very love cool. entering a new world, <laughs> I guess. So maybe that's part of it too. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's awesome. That's a good idea. I've never done that. I feel like my equivalent now is you're on Netflix or something. You're like, okay, I'll give it one episode and see if I really love it. (laughs) I guess guess it feels pretty much like that. Um, But yes, yeah, I don't don't always continue the show, but I just like to see something new. Yeah, there's something about that initial moment of like learning everything's new and like you get to step foot in that brand new world. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, yeah. Even something like the TV show like Generation Kill or Treme, it almost has a science fiction or fantasy vibe to me just in the way that you're really in a new world, that you've, you know, new language, mm-hmm. never been here before. Um, so, yeah, maybe maybe part of it is the appeal of the new. <laughs> yeah, and I, I love that science fiction fantasy feel comment because I feel like I will happily call a lot of things that are very clearly not science fiction or fantasy, science fiction and fantasy, just because I'm like, well, I like it. And it has some of these other things that I like about science fiction and fantasy. So I'm going to throw it all in the same umbrella. <laughs> Feels the same. Yeah. But uh, so 
I saw that uh, you've had a job as an educational editor, and I'm curious, do you feel like there's any impact on your writing from that? Or like, I guess, can you quantify what that would be? Because I'm sure it'd be impossible not to have any impact on your writing. That is another really good question. Um, I actually got asked this at the Australian launch and I had kind of flippantly said, I don't think so. I think maybe <laughs> maybe I just consistently punctuate more than usual or consistently capitalize. <laughs> but then I like went, went away and really thought about it. And actually, I, I think it has helped a lot. For educational editing, you're really looking at things like clarity. So I do think it helped me with things like exposition, thinking about what does the reader need to know right now? Um, what do they not need to know? What would be really confusing if I told them this right now? And what could be ambiguous? What could I clear up in my exposition and world building? So I think that definitely helped. And then I think the other thing is it just gave me a really big appreciation for editorial work. So um, I don't know if you've ever been to an editor's conference, but when you go, you really see that everyone's personality at this conference is identical. <laughs> just like, oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> I went the first time I went, I was like, oh my God, they're all clones of me. <laughs> I love that. So I really understand how dedicated editors are. You know, they work off the clock, they really care. So mm-hmm. I definitely think it's given me a huge appreciation of the amount of work that that, um, that my publishing teams are doing um, just because I've also seen behind the scenes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I know. Uh, so my, my main experience with editing personally is so I wrote a book a few years ago and I had a friend who was like, oh, like I, I would edit that for you if I want. I'm like, okay, sure. Like, I mean, tell me like, did you like it or not or whatever? And I got like a 12 or 13 page like single space document and it was like, okay, I've labeled everything into four categories and I have four subcategories in each of them. And I've commented in Google on all of these things. I'm like, wow. Okay. (laughs) I've got my work cut out for me and you like, you did a ton. That is a lot of work. (laughs) Yeah. I know that's like days of work, right? Yeah, absolutely. At least. Um, So yeah, I definitely see that hard work ethic there. Um, but yeah, and so you also have experience with short stories. Um, so I'm curious what maybe some of your takeaways with that are. Um, this was another interesting one because definitely I thought it would be an easier leap from short stories to novels. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I knew how to write. Um, and I also think my natural word length is um, like about 5,000 words. I don't know. I, th- I think okay. people kind of have a natural <laughs> length. <laughs> so which is a short story. Um, and I know my chapters ended up kind of tending towards that, which I I guess later figured out was really, um, really long for a YA novel. Usually they have really mm. short chapters. Um, so yeah, I think it was kind of a, a biggish leap for me. I, I had to think about structure, plot, and I guess with short stories, they're on such a smaller scale that you can uh, like present a slice of a world and people can kind of infer a lot from that. Um, they can kind of imagine that there's a wider world outside your slice of a world. But yeah, when I started writing this novel, I had a feeling that I had never had writing anything before where I just felt like if I don't create every leaf, every pebble on the ground, every cloud in the sky, this world doesn't exist in some way. It's, it's like it was just I had to be much more detailed with the world building that I'd ever experienced before. So that that was something I hadn't expected just from writing short stories. And then I guess my approach was also quite different. I think with short story, you don't have to hold the reader's attention for too long. Um, I think they're just a bit more likely to go with you because they know, you know, it's not going to be that long. Whereas with the novel, I was really researching techniques of like page turniness, trying to figure out how do I hold a reader's attention over this much longer work. 
And I always think that read it, like a, someone's attention is really valuable. So I don't want, <laughs> I don't waste their time. <laughs> I want to I want to hold on to them <laughs> if I can. <laughs> so yeah, I think it was just a different approach. Thinking about things that I like to read in a longer work. Thinking about you know. Mm-hmm. tropes, how to make this feel kind of like something I could be fanish about just to make myself feel like I'm in it. Uh, yeah, definitely nothing I had thought about um, writing short stories. Yeah, I love that. And so I, I really want to dig into that comment you made because I know my experience with Only a Monster and a lot of the buzz that I'm hearing about it is it's hard to put down, right? The pacing, yes. <laughs> like it really grips you and you keep going and you know all of a sudden it's 3 a.m. and you have work the next morning. Um, so I guess you said you were researching that page turniness. What kind of tips and tricks were you finding? What techniques were you using to accomplish that? Yeah, so um, I was really finding that there's not one method for any part of the book. Um, So, for example, I was looking at the Hunger Games book for part of my research and I really noticed how she was doing almost these micro, I'm calling it tractions, like a traction is a page tune, it's like micro tractions of like she'll set up, um, say, Hamish as a possible mentor and then she'll kind of seem as though she's going to deny it by making him, you know, kind of incompetent and like he doesn't care, but then she'll offer it back to you again. And you can kind of feel that, that page turniness of, um, of seeing this potential mentor and then, oh, you know, you've been denied and you can, but you kind of want to keep reading on. And then yes, he is the mentor. And there's just different kinds of tractions that are useful, um, in different parts of the book. But probably the one that I found the most useful was I had a hero's journey structure, which I thought would be interesting because my main character is a monster. And I've in a way almost cleaving to that structure, creates some level of page turniness. Um, people innately, feel like they know what's happening next and then you can kind of play with that twist or turn it to make them feel like that's not what I thought was going to happen next I'll read on (laughs) (laughs) yeah I love that yeah no I I also love so I mean it kind of feels like a lot of your different experiences are coming together here because you have that editing experience for how to like get that clarity of exactly what you want to say concisely and you got the short story where like you're used to telling everything in 5,000 words and now you're considering like the small chunks of story and how to make each one compelling so I can kind of see the clear progression there for you it all comes together (laughs) (laughs) thanks Um, and I mean I guess another technique of page turning is just you know say you set up a heist or something, I think people just want to read that heist. It's like if you set up something people want to read, then they want to read it. (laughs) Yep. Yep. I love that. Tease the trope and then just dive into (laughs) it or something. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Um, well, I would also, I'm very curious about this. I would love to hear a little bit more about this famous or infamous dinner of friends (laughs) that resulted in so many publishing deals. Um, well, yeah. So, um, quite a few years ago now I had dinner with a group of friends. We're just just talking of like you do. And it just came out that we just all had been thinking about writing a novel um, separately. And we were just like, you know what, why not? Why don't we do this? How hard could it be? How long could it take? (laughs) Um, So we made a pact. (laughs) We made a pact. We met up every Saturday to write together, to brainstorm. Um, It took a long time. Um, One of the other books was um, She Who Became the Sun by Shelley Parker Chan. So we, I guess we started our novels, our journey on the same night. <laughs> uh, I love yeah, that. Several yeah. publishing <laughs> uh, deals have come out of that. Um, I think partly it is just that mutual support, you know, people who kind of are really putting a lot of time and effort into this project um, around mm-hmm. you. It kind of makes you feel inspired to do it too. <laughs> 
Yeah, because I know I, I do feel like a common theme with talking to authors is a lot of the expectations initially are like, okay, I have this great story idea, let's go. And that muse is just going to carry me. And you're like, oh man, I got to show up and do the work day after day after day. <laughs> I got to get up early before I go to work day yep, after day. Yep. Yeah. Which is not to say that you can't have that burning passion pulling you along the way, but like it is a lot of work. It's a long time to have the burning passion be your only motivator, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, definitely uh, for me at least, it was really important to write something that I thought I would like to read just to, you know, to stay in it. Um, so for me, it was, quite, it was quite a long journey in the end. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. So, we have, we've talked some already about Only a Monster. So, I'd love to just get, do you have a pitch for us for Only a Monster? Um, yeah, so I say that it's about a monster girl named Joan um, whose summer is just absolutely ruined when the cute guy at work turns out to be a monster slayer. <laughs> um, it's got time travel. It's got um, kind of a Captain America-like heroic antagonist. It's got a mini heist. It's got a cute dog. <laughs> I would say it would perhaps appeal to Doctor Who fans, um, maybe Buffy the Vampire, Shadowhunter fans kind of a smoosh of all of those things. <laughs> yeah, I love that. And I can actually kind of see all those individual like comparisons right there. And so I, I love also that I asked you for a pitch and you gave me like a concise sentence that is like such a compelling hook. Um, <laughs> that took a long time to come up with as well. <laughs> oh, I believe it. <laughs> I believe it. Because uh, I know you've even said before that you had a lot of trouble initially at the querying stage for Only a Monster. And with such like a refined pitch, I feel like that would get you past that initial screening in any query these days. Yeah, if only I had had that pitch when I was querying. I found querying um, really tricky. I really struggled to condense and explain what Only a Monster was about in that kind of query format. So... I kind of thought I'd written a book that people might like to read, but I just couldn't get anyone to read it. <laughs> so I just kept getting form rejections um, from agents. And I know you're supposed to be able to get a certain percentage of full manuscript requests, and I think I only got one out of all of my cold querying. Uh, but I was lucky that I had friends who also um, were writers, so they referred me to their agents. <laughs> I don't know if I would have published this novel if I had not had a referral. <laughs> um, yeah, I think... Well, it wasn't easy for me at least to, I guess, to decide how much of the book to reveal because it's got a lot of twists and turns. Um, mm -hmm. And my UK publisher came up with the kind of the base of the current blurb, which I really like because it doesn't give away too much, um, but it does kind of say what it, kind of say what it's going to be about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also, I wonder if maybe because it was a time travel fantasy, which I think is not really much of a genre, um, so, and I think perhaps time travel was a little out of fashion at the time. So, I don't know. Maybe it, I'm not quite sure. <laughs> maybe, it was, maybe it was probably just a really bad query. <laughs> See, like, I, I'm such a sucker for time travel stories, too. And I actually picked up Only a Monster not knowing there was any time travel in it. So, that was such a pleasant surprise for me. Because, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, we're talking about pitches for books and everything. But I, I have a bad habit of just kind of like hearing buzz about a book or being like, okay, I think I would like this, but not actually reading the blurb or anything like that and just going in mostly blind. Uh, so, yeah. I love that too. I love that too. I used to get, um, uh, I used to go to this, the Melbourne Film Festival and I just let one of my cousins just choose every movie and I would just say, don't tell me anything about it. Let's just go and I'll just find out what it's about as, I'm, as I sit there, <laughs> uh, which I really enjoy. <laughs> 
Yeah. I mean, it does lead to some interesting moments, though, because like I should probably start reading the back of a book after I finish the book, because I'll try to like recommend a book to friends, and I could be like trying to pitch only a monster to some friends and be like, okay, like, uh, there's, I, I don't want to reveal the big secret that the main character is a monster, right? Like, I, I can't give that away. It's like, okay, the book's called Only a Monster. This is in the basic <laughs> premise. Like, I'm allowed to say that much. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't sure whether to give away the Nick reveal, which is like, um, that, that there's a hero to jo- to my main character, Jones Monster. But I, then I thought, you know what? I can't say the book is about nothing. I have to say it's about something. <laughs> right. So, yeah, I definitely did give that away in the book. Yeah, I, I imagine that's difficult, right? Because you got to think, you got to give away just enough to interest people. But if you give away too much, they feel like they've already gotten most of the story. It's like the movie trailer effect. We're like, okay, I got the whole story in two minutes. <laughs> Completely like the movie trailer effect. Um, yeah, I, I feel like the, the more the trailer shows as well, the, the kind of the less you want to see <laughs> weirdly yeah <laughs> yeah there is definitely that um but so I, I do want to dig into something that you said also i love the idea of kind of taking all the things that you love and writing a story out of that um so what are all of those elements for you what all did you throw in that you loved and how did you or is that like the entirety of your list how did you weed it down to get like just however many you included Yes. Yeah, so um, I guess first to describe it, uh, before I started writing the manuscript, I just knew I was I would be kind of in this world for a while. So I really wanted to make it something I would enjoy. So I just made this giant list of everything that I liked. So all the books, TV shows, movies, moments, characters, um, everything that I liked the most. And then I started to find patterns in them. So I might have listed like the moment when you realize that Daenerys is not going to sell the dragons or the moment when Jacoby is revealed to be the master, um, things like that. I would kind of try to find patterns in all the things that I liked. And I ended up getting this distilled list that was very distilled saying things like the poignancy of time travel. <laughs> like <laughs> When someone <laughs> seems like they're nothing interesting, but then they turn out to be amazing. <laughs> so, so yeah, I ended up with kind of some very, very specific items on the list and mm-hmm. then I guess I just didn't, I didn't choose all of them. I just kind of had that swirling around in my head, that list as I was, um, I guess I had already come up with a premise by that point. So I knew it was a monster versus a monster slayer. And then I let that list kind of help me think about which direction I wanted to go in for the world itself. The mechanics of, you know, I, I, I was like, I, what, how, what makes these monsters monstrous? And I saw time travel there and I thought maybe I'll, combine these two ideas, monsters and time travel. (laughs) Yeah, and I think something that was so fascinating to me about that concept of the monsters, where they steal time from humans and use it to time travel, a lot of times I feel like monsters are monsters by necessity, like vampires need blood to survive, werewolves don't really choose to turn at the moon, like it's outside of their control. But in this case, the monsters are like, yeah, we'll steal a human life because it's fun. We just kind of want to. (laughs) (laughs) Completely. Um, Yeah, I guess I gave them a little bit of a a hunger or a yearning for time travel. Um, So at the beginning of the book, uh, Joan doesn't really she kind of knows that her family calls themselves monsters, but she doesn't really know what that means um, until one day she finds out that they uh, they steal life from the human lifespan and then they use that, or they, I guess they steal time from the human lifespan and they use that time to travel in time. So they don't have to do that. As you say, it's really just like a something they do for fun. It's part of their culture. <laughs> um, but I guess, yeah, I guess there is a yearning component 
because the actual mechanic of making the time travel jump um, is to feel a yearning for that time inside you. Um, So, but um, having said that, um, I also want it to be a very resistible urge. Like you might want to do it, but you don't have to do it. And I suppose the reason that I I made them actually bad, (laughs) you know, actually bad and and able to help themselves, as you say, it's not like a vampire. They won't starve to death or anything if they don't time travel. But I really wanted, you know, kind of both sides of the story to be understandable, both perspectives. So Nick, the the hero, kills monsters. And, I, you know, I hope you can kind of understand his point of view. And then for Joan, her family are monsters, so he's killing her family. So I just wanted readers to be able to see both sides of the story. And for me, that worked best when the monsters really were monsters. (laughs) Right. Yeah, and th- there's also something interesting because maybe this is just because, like I said, I really enjoy time travel. I feel like if I had that power of the monsters, I could do some of those same like mental gymnastics where I'm like, okay, but if I steal only like a few minutes from a lot of people, is that really bad? Is that worse than like wasting their time in a conversation or something? Like, I think I could probably justify that. And that worries me a little bit. <laughs> I had definitely wanted to raise that question in the reader's mind. Like, would you do this? Maybe you would do it. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Especially if you had some reason, something you want, some event you wanted to change, maybe maybe you would do that. Yeah, and so I do love also because I mean one of the things I like about time travel is all of the potential shenanigans that result from it, right? So I mean, how did you approach time travel in Only a Monster to maybe? I know there's a lot of like obvious pitfalls you can fall into, and then I'm sure once you started writing, there's some not so obvious ones that you realize can trip you up. So how did you navigate all of that? Um. Good question. So um, I guess, first of all, I I had to decide what kind of time travel is this? Mm -hmm. Um, Because I love every kind of time travel. Like I love a Groundhog Day, single day loop. Oh my God, yes. Ted Chang's (laughs) like like time travel arc, I guess. I love Cage Baker's cyborgs infiltrating the past. I love a multiple timelines. I love all of them. (laughs) So then I had to choose one. And again, I was just really guided by my own likes and dislikes, I suppose. What did I like the most? Um, And in the end, I knew I didn't want a perfect loop. I didn't want that feeling like a hard fate. Um, So, and I also knew I didn't really want the characters to be able to meet each other. Um, And I didn't want it to be too easy to make changes. I didn't want like a Ray Bradbury sound of thunder where, you know, you can't eat or drink or step on a butterfly. (laughs) So I went with something more like a Connie Willis model, I guess, which is you know, you have some agency in the world, you can eat, you can drink, you can step on insects if that happens, probably not on purpose, <laughs> but, um, you know, that won't disastrously change the timeline because there's something in the world that is like pushing against your changes to kind of preserve the general shape of the timeline. So that's the model I went with. And in terms of pitfalls, I feel like, I feel like choosing to write time travel for my first novel was just <laughs> showing me how naive I was. <laughs> when I was choosing a topic I didn't even it didn't occur to me that it would be difficult at all because I loved it so much (laughs) and I'd seen so many other people do it Uh, but yeah when it came down to it um, yeah it was very tricky Uh, you even lose you know basic I guess fantasy tools like time jeopardy Um, usually Mm -hmm. in a book you can say we have to do this within the next three days or something terrible will happen but um, you've got time travel in your world building you have to think about ways to create a time jeopardy if if, um, if you need it uh, or to find other ways to create momentum in the book that don't rely on time jeopardy. 
Um, so I was having to, you know, come up with things like there are places in the world um, called Amaya where monsters can't travel from and that was like partly to help me get some feeling of time jeopardy and stakes in those places at least. So, yeah, lots of just, just much more difficult than I ever imagined it would be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I can imagine because I know like as a fan of time travel, like, you know, like if I ever did time travel, I could solve all those issues, but like once you get into the weeds of it, I'm sure you realize just how challenging it is. I know. Yeah, even like, should I, you know, should I go back and kill Hitler or like what, <laughs> what are these considerations that my characters are having? But you know, you, ha- you can't write a book that has everything in it. Right, right, maybe exactly. Maybe have tried. Who knows? Maybe. <laughs> yeah, and so unsurprisingly given the title of the book in our discussion so far, the main character is a monster. And she's also, though, sympathetic and easy to root for. So how how do you balance that? How do you make a monstrous character sympathetic? Um, yeah, it was really important to me to make, I guess, um, the monstrous side as sympathetic as the human side. And I think one of the ways that that's done is um, in the same way that you give a hero normally, um, I guess, a lot of sympathy you give them backstory you give your monster backstory you give them relationships where you show them loving people you show people loving them um you show some of their motivations their their hopes for their lives um and i think all of those things creates a feeling of empathy in the reader um and then in a way um uh the morally gray aspect of like when they're doing the things that they do when they're stealing life the the moral grayness feeling comes from the reader themselves because um, it comes from their own empathy where like if this story had been told from the hero's point of view I don't think he would have had as much empathy for the monsters at all (laughs) yeah and I mean flipping points of views is really interesting to me because I know you said before that I mean one of like the core seeds of the initial idea is the fact that you know like usually a lot of these stories told from the hero's point of view slays a bunch of monsters or you know people who were supposed to consider monstrous and then the camera just pans away from all the dead bodies and follows the hero you're not supposed to worry about it yeah exactly um yeah that was definitely my i guess inspiration for the premise um when i was growing up um i guess all those those big blockbuster films and tv shows i used to watch um had really clearly demarcated good guys and bad guys but i would you know as i got older i would notice that not many of those heroes looked like me, <laughs> but then I would notice that kind of the bad guys would sometimes look like me. Sometimes the only kind of Asian face I would see on screen in one of those blockbuster movies was just these guys that would like show up for a stunt for the fight scenes and then <laughs> they would just get beaten up and killed by the hero. And it just gave me this feeling of like I really wanted to write about one of those classic heroes fighting against you rather than for you. And to, like, provide that feeling of empathy, which for the other side, so that, you know, um, as a reader, you might go back and forth and think, well, maybe maybe it's not good to be killing them. <laughs> maybe it's not good, you know, obviously it's not good for them to be stealing life. But, yeah, I wanted, I guess I wanted to create empathy, but there would, there would be normally none. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, I mean, at least specifically within the context of Only a Monster, I know I had that, like, difficult, like, I guess, moral question where there were a couple of times I was like, okay, but like, let's think about this from the hero's point of view. Do I want him to win? Because maybe, maybe I do. I could see maybe the argument for that. <laughs> maybe like... he's a human. I would want him to stop. <laughs> People still right. You're right. Now, yeah. which i think is part of the appeal right is you you get people invested in both sides 
fingers crossed they are, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I just I always really like it when um, there are two perspectives in a story that are just both really understandable um, while also being mutually unreconcilable. You think, yeah. well, I understand where you're both coming from, but I cannot imagine how this could be resolved. <laughs> yep, I, I think that's my favourite kind of conflict as well. Like, I, There's still always a place for like, black and white very clear good very clear evil or whatever but like i also love when it gets messy (laughs) (laughs) i really love it that when it gets messy (laughs) yeah and i guess speaking of messy let's talk about enemies to lovers so what do you think are some of the essentials of getting this trope right because i know that's one of the main draws of the book at least that's one of the things that i enjoyed um yeah i love enemies i love enemies to lovers i love enemies that i can ship i guess um (laughs) i don't know about right or wrong (laughs) i feel like if i go back to that list um really my approach was all about you know you know what is your taste because it might be different to someone else's they might just like a different kind of enemies to lovers um but for me i really love it when you have enemies who are kind of each other's equal in the world. They're really well matched in like intelligence, drive, but they're just on opposite sides. And also I super love it when like someone really morally good and someone really morally bad kind of are both in this world and you feel like they could be really good together if they just teamed up. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, but this, you know, this completely irreconcilable thing is in the way. Um, so that is my favourite, I guess, setup for enemies um, and then I would just ship them. So... <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I suppose that that is my favorite kind of enemies to lovers. But yeah, I, I guess as an arc, yeah, you would start um, start as enemies or start as friends, turn into enemies for some reason, and then I feel like often the enemies starts to soft, like you start to see the enemy in a different light as the reader or viewer. They'll, they'll be shown, you know, to be maybe caring towards the protagonist, <laughs> um, and then that relationship could slowly shift. I suppose that is the the arc that I'm that I like that I'm familiar with. But you know, there's many there's many kinds of arcs. <laughs> no judgment <laughs> about what's the yeah. best. <laughs> and again, I, I like that this has been kind of a common theme with a lot of people I've talked to is to stick with like what you really love when you're writing because no story can be for everyone. So you might as well write what you love. Like I know you mentioned Shelley Parker Chan, she who became the sun. I know they were saying the same thing about writing their story. I know C.S. Picat with Dark Rise was saying the same thing. Also at the dinner. Um, <laughs> Also yeah. at that dinner, there we go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I guess we, I guess because we're friends, we approach them, we approach this in the same way. You know, this makes um, sense now. <laughs> <laughs> not everything is for everybody, um, and particular us, particularly the three of us, like we would always find that if two of us like something, definitely the other person would hate it. Like it's just, it was just always. Mm-hmm. It wasn't the same thing. It's the same people <laughs> every time, um, but it just really just really teaches you that, um, you know, you don't have to write, you you can't write for everyone, but you can write for yourself and, you know, probably there'll be other people that also like this thing um, that that you like, (laughs) which is fine. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Um, And, okay, so circling back a little bit, because we were talking about world building and how you had to spend so much effort on this compared to short stories. I kind of get the impression that this is kind of like one of your strengths as a writer. Uh, loved the world. Uh, it was really fascinating. And parts of it are very memorable and you can easily latch onto it. So I, I'm just curious, like, do you have any advice related to how you approach world building? Do you have a specific method, anything that worked for you? 
Um, oh, this I feel like um, when you ask people about something that they do kind of naturally, it's it's really hard to explain. <laughs> um, so I feel like plotting, <laughs> plotting is hard for me. <laughs> so I could kind of explain my techniques for plotting, um, but but time to, uh, not time traveling, but world building. Um, I would say that for world building, I initially did that list technique, and then I really talked about um, this developing world a lot with friends, almost until it became kind of helpful. Um, I, was, <laughs> I was really guided by this internal sense of like, yes, this idea is correct for this book and this world. No, this idea is not correct for this world and this book. Um, almost the way that a character, after you have written enough of them, you kind of know what they would and wouldn't do or say. I could kind of feel what this world would and wouldn't, would and wouldn't be like. So I suppose my tip would be, yeah, if you can, try the list technique to come up with all your favourite things and then maybe try and build the world out of the things that you like the most and then potentially you'll just have a really good understanding of what of what you like and then in parallel you'll have a good feeling of what the world should be like. That's how I did it. I feel like that, I don't know how helpful that is in terms of tips, but, yeah, I guess that was my process. No, that's great. Um, I'm also always curious, so when certain aspects of world building like feel like they're easily memorable or quotable or like I could get it on a t-shirt I'm curious like how much conscious effort gets into nailing that aspect and how much that sort of just happened organically like for me in this story that was uh, with all the different monster families and there's kind of like the chant or the saying for like what they can do or like this family hides this family like binds this family is the only one that remembers um, so that's something you were trying to get really catchy or was that just something you know you kind of came up with it um, I did want to rhyme um, just because I love a I love a fantasy rhyme. I love the Lord yes. of the Rings rhyme. <laughs> that was just really a little bit just self indulgent, I guess, just because I like it. Um, but I really did realize I had not done a quotable quote pass of this book at all. Uh, when people started asking me to write my favorite quote or any quote from the book, and I was really like, oh my, oh no. And then I was just, I reread my book. I was like, is there any quotable lines? <laughs> no, there isn't. But I, I found a couple. <laughs> but no, I definitely did not consciously do that. Maybe I will next time, knowing that people like you to write a quote when you sign the book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I feel like definitely lacking in quotable quotes. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I think people find, you know, people tell you what you want, they want you to write as their quote. So maybe it's up to the reader. I, I also love, I've had friends that, uh, misremember quotes or they think there's a quote in a book that's not actually there. It's just something they've made up and they'll get the author to write that. And I just find that <laughs> hilarious. It's <laughs> <That is> amazing. <laughs> oh, I need those people to, yeah, tell me some quotes. <laughs> them in book two. Yeah, there you go. Uh, and so I know you talked about you had those like weekly meetups with the rest of the people who are at that dinner, that support group of other writers. Um, so how would those go? Like what does a typical critique session look like if someone wants to maybe start up critique sessions for their own group? Um, so that group was really just writing in the company of other people. Um, but I mm -hmm. also do have a critique partner as well um, where we'll meet up on Zoom lately once a week um, and then we'll just do um, half-hour sessions each where we'll present a problem or anything, part of the manuscript to each other, and we'll just try and figure out um, whatever problem we're having that week so that we can just keep writing for the rest of the week. So it could be anything. It might be, you know, oh, let's brainstorm how they get out of a prison cell. 
and um, and then we might do different techniques. If, we, if we're struggling, we might do this technique that we just call 20 things. We find tw- come up with 20 ways to come out of this prison cell. <laughs> um, and I feel like actually that is, a, that is a quite a useful one for people because um, around the f- first 15 or maybe the first 10 are really easy. They're really obvious ones. I don't know. Mm-hmm. They get a key. They like get a key baked into a cake. Um, but right. around <laughs> 15, you start to get some real more interesting ideas and then the harder it gets towards the end, kind of the more interesting and creative um, the brainstorming ideas become. So, yeah, I guess I guess a typical critique session really could be anything that just helps with the helps with the manuscript. Even just reading through the uh, part of the manuscript and saying, "I didn't understand that bit. I would have thought that they would be thinking about this instead." Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's probably what a critique right. session would look like. <laughs> Makes sense. And yeah, no, I, I really enjoy that 20 things uh, approach. I've never heard of that before, but <laughs> I, I tend to be like very analytical with how I approach most things. So I love the idea of don't think of the perfect solution. Think of every solution and then pick the perfect <laughs> one from that. It's got to be there. So yeah, that's great. I'm quite analytical too, so I also like that. Um, <laughs> and then it's good. it gets really, I mean, it gets hard, but also fun towards the end because you're really coming up with things that you know, if you, you have neither of you have seen before. You've really come up with something new. <laughs> yes, and I I can already imagine the critique session that went into uh, certain creative elements of the heist scene that we were talking about earlier. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I imagine there was quite a few uh, maybe easier solutions before you guys decided on that one. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that was hard. That one. <laughs> I know because I'd come up with the trap first, <laughs> so then I was like, uh, <laughs> "Why did why did you come up with the solution first next time?" <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, uh, so I'd love to know uh, what's next for you. Any upcoming work you can talk about? I'm assuming probably a sequel is in the works. Yeah, so I've got two sequels in the works for Only a Monster. Um, it's going to be a trilogy and I'm working on book two at the moment, going through edits at the moment. And I was just really happy to be able to come back into this world because, as you know, when you when you write a book and you sell a book, there's no guarantee that it'll sell at all or, you know, you'll be able to write um, more than one book for, um, for the book deal. So, yeah, I'm just, I, was, I just feel very, very grateful <laughs> to be able to continue writing in this world. Yeah, and I will say, so I again, with me liking to go into books relatively blind, I didn't know if this was standalone or if it was going to be a series. I didn't know what that was. So I reached the end and I'm like, you know what? I'm still not sure because it does wrap up fairly nicely. But at the same time, I was like, there's got to be more. <laughs> I'm going to be so sad <laughs> if there's not more. <laughs> I had always written it as I had just always thought that people would know there would be more um, from, from the ending. But then people started to reach out to me um, when they were reading the arc saying, is that how it ends? <laughs> Like, is there, is, there, is there any more? And I was like, oh, no, that's not the, how the story ends. I mean, it's how book one ends. Um, right, but, you know, right. Of course. <laughs> and then I realized, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't actually say book one on the book itself, um, <sighs> which I hadn't, also hadn't fully realized <laughs> until people started asking me. Yeah, but I, I think for most people that read it, it'll definitely leave them wanting more, which is, as a writer, I'm sure the feeling that you want them to be left with. <laughs> definitely. Yeah, so it does it does have an ending, like it does wrap up an arc, because um, I, I, I always get stressed out with big cliffhangers. So I would say there's not a big cliffhanger at the end, but um, there's definitely a lot still to, like a lot of revelations, a lot of backstories still to unravel. <laughs> right, Absolutely. Um, well, a uh, question I kind of always like to ask people also is, are there any good books you've read lately that you can recommend? And since I talked to a lot of authors, 
they don't even have to be out yet because <laughs> I'm sure you get advanced copies or and uh, you, you don't have to be reading them currently. So if it's just something you've read a while ago and you'd really like to talk up, then let's hear about it. Um, I feel like I have to talk up Shehubi Kabistan. Absolutely beautiful, <laughs> amazing uh, by Shelley Parker Chen um, about the Emperor Zhu, who is a real historical figure in China. Um, but Shelley wrote um, the character as... Um, as, a, as a, I guess she gender flipped it. So it's a, uh, the character's a woman, um, but the other characters don't know this. So I guess that's one I would definitely recommend. Um, I also have recently read um, this book by Riss M. Nielsen called Deep in Providence. It was absolutely amazing. It's about these, um, about this friendship group who loses a friend in a car accident and there's a little bit of magic in the book. So um, they all turn to this very dangerous magic just because they loved her so much and really want her back. And for me, it was just such a uh, such a poignant and beautiful book. I had so many feelings reading it. Riss really digs into the characters so that you just really love them by the end. And I was just like, wow, how did you create characters like this? This is incredible. <laughs> I definitely wanted to figure that one out. And I would also recommend um, Blackwater Sister by Zen Cho. Amazing diaspora book about a woman who is from America, but her family is from Malaysia and they all move back to Malaysia and she gets she starts getting haunted by this very, I guess, like score settling grandmother of hers who's recently <laughs> died. <laughs> so the grandmother wants her to settle a lot of scores. Um, it's kind of creepy, but also funny um, and also really moving. So yeah. I recommend those books a lot. <laughs> yeah, I've heard such great things about Blackwater Sister. I definitely want to get to that soon. And that other book it's sounds so fantastic as well. So, so <laughs> there good. goes it's my so TBR. <laughs> <laughs> and then, Vanessa, one way I always like to close out these interviews is just asking, what is something that you are excited about right now? Um, yeah, so, um, oh gosh, so many things. Um, I'm really excited about, um, I should also uh, recommend Deborah Fillet's Blood Scion. It's this really gritty, it's like slightly sci-fi, but also fantasy um, war, sort of military YA about uh, this girl Sloane who gets called up into this military um, to fight against her own people. And it's amazing. I'm really excited about that one. I'm really excited about the sequel for June, the movie. I thought the movie was amazing. <laughs> oh, I still haven't seen it yet. <laughs> Oh my gosh, it was so good. That's what I've heard. And in preparation, I watched the original Dune movie, <laughs> which was maybe not the best movie. <laughs> I think I watched some of that in preparation as well, but then I was like, you know what, let's just, let's just leave this as a clean slate. <laughs> yep. Because uh, I hadn't read the book in so long. Um, I could only barely remember it. Uh, but yeah, I really enjoyed the movie. I don't know how they made such a coherent movie out of June. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's what I'm excited about. Perfect. Yeah, I, I'm excited about getting to see Dune for the first time because I still have not seen it yet. <laughs> I told so myself, good, you know, so this is going to be a movie at release that I see, but with a kid now, that doesn't really happen anymore. So. <laughs> Maybe when it's streaming. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, I think it is already. I'm not sure. I'll have to check. I'm very behind on my movie watching. I'm um, sure. <laughs> but yeah, this has been so much fun, Vanessa. Thank you for taking the time to come on the podcast. Thank you so much. This was super fun, Travis. You can find Vanessa Len on Twitter as Vanessa underscore writes. 
or at her website, VanessaLen.com. I'm always a sucker for time travel stories, and Only a Monster is the most unputdownable one I've found in ages. As always, you can find us at TheFantasyInn.com or click the invite in the show notes to join our Discord server. If you enjoyed this interview, consider supporting us on Patreon. We've got exclusive episodes, video interviews, and more. Or take a minute of your time to leave us a review online. It really means the world. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you can catch all our future episodes. That's all for this week. Until next time.